Welcome to the DTB podcast for February 2023, volume 61, number two. Uh, my name is David Fazakli and I'm DTB's deputy editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, editor-in-chief. Uh, many thanks for joining us for this podcast in which we will talk about the content of February's DTB. Uh, before we start, James, I think there was something you wanted to get off your chest. I thought it'd be quite useful to talk about the current state of the NHS and in particular the issue about the flu epidemic we're seeing coupled with scarlet fever because I think it's created a, a bit of a perfect storm which we've not seen in the past. Um, in my experience when we've had flu epidemics obviously there has been enormous pressure on the NHS but what you tend to f see happens is that once people clock that there's flu going on out there and you know, when one person in the family gets it and then another person, there's an understanding, okay, this is flu, antibiotics don't work, we don't need to go and see our doctor or go down to casualty or whatever it might be. But I think what's happened this year, because of the scarlet fever scare, people have thought, well, if it's scarlet fever, this is dangerous, I need to have antibiotics. So I think what certainly we've seen is a huge increase in patients worried that they might have scarlet fever and therefore needing antibiotics. And of course, there are huge unexpected consequences of giving one child antibiotics. Because as soon as you've done that, then if another child in that family gets sick, there's an expectation. And if that child is at school, perhaps the rest of their friends at school or in their class, there's an expectation if they've got symptoms that they'll need antibiotics. So I think one of the problems we've had is this huge explosion. And I just wonder if we're really keen on antibiotic stewardship, which I think we must be, I just feel that we need better point of care testing in the future because I was pretty cross with a lot of ivory tower people suggesting that we needed to be free and easy with antibiotics because of this scarlet fever issue. And I mean, it may be, you know, in the short term, the right thing, but it's such the wrong thing in the long term because it just creates this, well, we'll be really careful, but if there's any slight hint of anything, we'll just add it to the water. I thought it was just interesting. And I think it's quite an interesting issue for a lot of frontline clinicians about, you know, having to be even more careful in some respects in situations like this than perhaps we are. So that was something I wanted to get off my chest. But but let's get on to this month's DTB. And uh, you've written an interesting editorial on this issue. I think it's part of our PCN-IF, which is one of our quality markers around prescribing incentives for edoxaban. Do you want to tell us a little about this? So yes, the editorial that's appearing this month features, I guess, two issues. One is therapeutic substitution. Uh, but in particular, focusing on this initiative, which I think is just in England, um, that's encouraging uh, GP practices uh, to, I guess, reduce their prescribing costs by swapping patients from other direct acting oral anticoagulants to idoxiban. And I think the starting point, as far as I could make out, is the agreement that NHS England has had or does have with the company, uh, which is providing Edoxaban at a discounted price to the NHS. Um, worth saying that this is certainly confidential and we can't find any details on what that price is compared with the list price of Edoxaban. Um, but as a result, it's keen that Edoxaban should be used first line. Now, to encourage this, there's a scheme that, as you point out, that is actively supporting practices to swap to Redoxaban from other DOACs. 
Now, you could argue, well, what's wrong with that? And in the UK, certainly we've had a, a long history of trying to reduce prescribing costs and encouraging cost-effective prescribing. And certainly in a previous job, I spent some time working across <laughs> primary care uh, trying to make this happen. And I suppose if you go back as far as the 1990s, we had generic substitution, which was all about moving away from expensive branded drugs and encouraging clinicians to prescribe the cheaper generic equivalent. But in that case, you were using the same chemical substance, uh, just it was the unbranded version. But we have had examples of therapeutic substitutions in the past uh, where we encouraged clinicians to move from an expensive branded drug to a cheaper branded one, and usually within the same class. But I say, unlike generic substitution, in which the patient ends up on the same chemical substance, therapeutic substitution involved changing people to a different drug, uh, which I guess may or may not have the same effect. And you can think of examples. Uh, I remember Rebeprazole being one. And there is also, those with long memories may remember, Cerevastatin was one that we uh, yes. got our fingers burnt when we, when we encouraged people to move from more expensive statins to the cheaper Cerevastatin. Um, so for me, the issue is, is this actually the right thing to be doing? Uh, there are questions over therapeutic equivalence um, and are all DOACs the same? And then other issues, which for me involve careful discussion with patients to make sure that the transition is going to work. So there has to be an informed discussion with the patient over the risks and the process for changing. Um, there needs to be some consideration of the practical issues. I mean, you don't want a patient to end up on, on two DOACs at the same time and taking them both. So somebody's got to manage the practical issues. Um, and then the workload issues. You know, this takes time. This takes input from healthcare professionals. And of course, these are costs that aren't factored in to the process. Yeah. So I think I was left with the feeling that we're encouraging people to use a drug that is cheaper for the NHS, but we're not actually taking into account all the issues and certainly not all the costs. From your point of view, when it comes to general practice, is this an easy transition to do? Well, do you know, I was just trying to think about this because if you look back, as you say, all the other changes we've made, we had the generic substitution, then we had perhaps class substitution. But even if you look at those class substitutions in the past, statins, proton pump inhibitors, diuretics, whilst there were dose differences and perhaps um, issues like that, actually there was no difference between them when it came to such things as monitoring or even variations in dosage with regard to elements of the patient like you know renal function or age. I, I can't remember there being, and yet here we are actually with the DOACs, there is significant difference between them in when it comes to when you should lower the dose or how it should be done. So I think I, I think it is different and you're right. I think what no one seems to cost into this is the impact this has on patients and on prescribers when it comes to the workload and the, and the complications. So it's always a bit of a worry. And I think that usually you can see 
why you're doing it and understand and make those differences. So, for example, one can look at what we're doing with um, MDIs and the need to reduce the amount of um, harmful gases. So you can, you know, you can understand the cost benefit. The problem with this, as you say, is we have no idea what the discount is on Edoxaban. So I'm left thinking, well, I'll do my bit for the government and, and trust them that this is the right thing to do, which is just a little uneasy. You know, how do I, if a patient says to me, well, what, you know, how much is the government saving? You know, how many more hips can they do as a result of this? I have no idea. And I think, you know, it's back to this idea that for some drugs, swapping between different chemical substances is less a risk. If you move between a PPI, it's pretty much going to do a job and it's not something you have to monitor an effect of. You will know if it works or it doesn't work. Um, but moving between DOACs, I would put this in a much higher risk category than other substitutions. And I just feel that if you haven't got a compelling reason to change a patient, why would you want to do it? I mean, I go back to when we criticised, I guess, a little bit at the time, but um, the mum test that was quoted at the time when, when the um, COVID vaccines came out and, and encouraging our mums to get vaccinated. Well, if it was your mum and she was stabilised on a, on a DOAC, would you want her changed? Not sure I would. So I, I just feel very uncomfortable about uh, a process that is encouraging practices to swap between what are far more risky drugs than we used to, saving that we have no idea the scale of it, and for additional costs that nobody seems to have factored in. I mean, if we're going to take GP time, nurse time, pharmacist time, and yet that's all to save a bit of money on the drugs budget. So it just feels wrong. Exactly. And as you say in the editorial, it's got the longest patent. So well, quite. it looks as if we'll be doing this all again in a year or two's time. Yes, it's, yes, it just seems that they've stitched themselves into this deal and are looking to maximise it on it. But actually, there are consequences that haven't really been explored. But So anyway, OK, I'll stop my rant. Um, <laughs> let's stay with DOAX, but let's move on to um, a DTP Select article that discusses a study that looked at DOAC prescribing in people with uh, renal impairment. Uh, do you want to say a bit more about this one? Yes, I mean, I love this study. This is really interesting. It's from Heart September, and it's a retrospective cohort study looking at 722 general practices, about 6 million patients' data, and looked at the trend in diagnosis of non-valvular atrial fibrillation between 2014 and 2019, and the use of anticoagulants including DOACs. And it's just a fascinating insight into the enormous change that's occurred over that time. So over that five years, the prevalence of diagnosed atrial fibrillation rose from 1% to 2%, um, which is in itself quite interesting. Obviously, if you start looking, you find it. But over that time, the use of DOACs increased 30 times over. Um, and interesting enough for me as well was that if you looked at the use of warfarin over that time, actually the use of warfarin was still 5% higher in 2019 than 2014. So some fascinating insight into, if you like, the workload that's been done um, in that time by general practice. But also I think what, what, what this study looked at in particular was renal impairment and how good are GPs and prescribers in primary care at ensuring that they are following the SPCs for these DOACs and ensuring that they're using the right dose for that patient. And that 
obviously is a major issue, which we've touched on actually in your editorial discussion earlier. I think we've highlighted this problem in previous DTBs that these are not straightforward drugs to use. They all have nuances and differences uh, around their prescribing, particularly in, in renal impairment. And it's based on creatinine clearance, not EGFR. Uh, which is different from other drugs that we deal with. Yep. So what, what did they find? So, I mean, what they found was that between 39 40%, 50% were not prescribed at the right dose um, during the study. So there was some issues. They also found that, which was quite reassuring, that GPs were not using EGFR rather than creatinine clearance. Um, but as you say, it is a minefield. I have a little notebook and it's got my diary and everything, but there are about half a dozen drugs that I've got notes on with a great big sort of red board around the page so I can find it. And in those, those pages include the DOAX, spironolactone, amiodarone. You know, these are the drugs that I just look up every time because apixaban, for example, it talks about creatinine clearance between 15 and 29 mils per minute. You need to reduce the dose in non-valvular atrial fibrillation, but only if they have on it for DVT or PE or prevention of those two things, then you should simply use it with caution. So you don't necessarily reduce the dose. And then also in Apixaban, you've got this strange thing that if two of the following, if they're over 80, under 60 kilos, or have a creatinine over 133, then you should reduce the dose. So you've got, even for Apixaban, you've got to think, well, what's the indication for this drug? What, you know, uh, what age are they? What weight are they? What's their creatinine? What's their creatinine clearance? And it's the same for the other drugs as well. And they all have nuances like that. So it is, as you say, the complicated area and one that my own feeling is that these drugs came out quite rightly. There was concern. These are it's a powerful action to, to obviously anticoagulate someone. And I think they came out um, quite cautiously, quite rightly. But now I think they're proving their worth. They've demonstrated that they are as good as warfarin and, of course, actually more cost effective because of the lack of such a sort of backup with INR clinics and such like. But I think now actually what's happening is we increase the use of these drugs. We need to review this and I think find a way of perhaps just getting it a bit more straightforward. It feels to me as if if it's a very complicated area and needs to be simplified. And having looked at the results of this study, do you know how well your practice performs in terms of prescribing? Very it? interesting. Well, I, I have one partner who is very twitched about a Pixaban. So actually he does searches and uh, it's not uncommon once in a while for you to get a tap on the shoulder and say, James, I think you need to reduce this dose. They've had their X months of this, or did you realize that they're now over 80? And so we do look at this and it does throw up issues. Um, and that's a bit of a difficulty here because these are issues that can come up at any time. That It's not like warfarin where people go and they have their INR done and they get the result and they're told the dose and told when they're going to review it again. This, these are drugs where their age can change at a certain time, but their weight may change at another. And what do you do when a patient's creatinine hovers around 133? You know, we've got patients whose creatinine clearance has dropped to, say, 45. Six months later, it's gone up to 55. Now, do I put their dose back up? Do I keep it at what it was? 
what do I do? I, you know, it, it's yeah. it's a really complicated area, and I think one that needs some guidance on. And, and I think this is we've got enough real world data here to really look at the SPCs and tidy them up. I think. I think what again would be particularly interesting to see because this study we're quoting looks at data up to 2019. Now, clearly, 2020 pandemic onwards, there was a huge shift, wasn't there, from warfarin moving people over to DOAX. So we'll have a another step change in, in numbers of patients, presumably, who are now prescribed DOAX. So it'll be interesting to see whether, again, we are keeping up with the monitoring for renal function for this whole new cohort that are now on Totally. Um, so yeah. I think it'd be, be worth these, these authors repeating this um, now to see whether the improvement that they saw has been maintained. Yeah. The other little nugget that came out of the study, which I liked, was they found that adherence rates were only around 50%, which is, which is um, you know, quite astounding, really. And uh, non-adherence was interesting. It was greater in men. Well, not much surprise there. Non-white ethnicities, non-smokers and ex-smokers. And with higher socioeconomic status. So posh people seem to be doing less with their DOACs than others. So, um, but yeah, there's some interesting stuff there. And as I say, I was, I was surprised by um, actually how adherence rates were quite as poor as they were. Okay, well, certainly once, once well, I'm sure we'll come back to DOACs again. Um, but I think, again, this one thing it showed me was that messing around with DOACs isn't the thing you should be doing. Um, and back to the editorial, why are we trying to transfer people? But I've had my go at that one. Let me, let me, let me move on to a commentary article. Um, Tech and his team have, have uh, looked at a study. Um, empagliflozin in people with preserved, or the, the headline is people with preserved ejection fraction. Again, do you want to set the scene for this one? Yeah, so this is the Emperor Preserve study. And as you say, it's a, it's it was a placebo-controlled trial, about 6,000 patients with heart failure. Um, and they wanted to look at patients with preserved ejection fraction heart failure, but actually included anyone whose ejection fraction was greater than 40%. And obviously, 40 to 50% uh, ejection fraction is not, strictly speaking, um, completely impaired. I think it has another phrase, but it's not preserved. So there were some patients, um, I think about... Uh, I've got the figures here somewhere. Yes, yeah, 67% of patients had an injection fraction of 50% or over. So obviously there was a 33% of patients whose ejection fraction wasn't preserved. Um, but this was an interesting study because obviously this, as they point out in the study, heart failure with preserved ejection fractions was just a mouthful. It used to be called, obviously, um, diastolic, didn't it? It used to be called diastolic heart failure in the good old days. Um they talk about how this is actually becoming an increasingly common problem, um, largely because of changes in um, uh, life and the fact that this often is a condition of older age um, and multiple comorbidities. Um, so this is going to be a common issue. And at the moment, there isn't um, seemingly uh, a drug that has much impact on the outcome. So this study was designed to look at the impact impagliflozin had on these patients um, over two years. And it did show benefit in patients, but particularly those in um, who had an ejection fraction under 50%. So it's sort of interesting. I think it won't be long before these SGLT2 inhibitors are being used 
a great deal more in in our populations. Um, and this study just begins to demonstrate perhaps that there's a place for them in patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. I mean, again, it was interesting that the the outcome, I mean, it was a, one of these composite outcomes, cardiovascular death or hospitalization for heart failure. And, and it, you know, what I think the memory of the NNT was about 31 over two years. Um, but most of the benefits seemed, again, to be through reducing hospitalization for heart failure. Um, and again, it's back to this question, are these just slightly more effective diuretics, these, <laughs> these drugs? Um, yeah. Or is, are they doing something something else? Um, but they are certainly evidence for them, for them is is accumulating. But I do wonder whether the title was slightly misleading on this study because they, they do emphasise that it was in preserved ejection fraction. But as you say, the benefit was more impressive in in those whose ejection fraction would typically fall in the reduced ejection fraction group, or was it mid range? Was it a slight misnomer for the study? Well, I, exactly. It was funded by Boehringer, Ingelheim and Eli Lilly. But you're right, it, it makes it a bit cross, actually. There was a whole series of statin trials, likewise, that were meant to be about primary prevention. And you'd look and find about 30% of the patients in it were actually having them for secondary prevention. I never quite understood why, why that should need to happen. Um, perhaps they felt they needed it to happen t- to make sure they got something positive out of the study. But I think, yes, it's, it's, I mean, there were other benefits, of course. There was a, a lower decline in EGFR in the empagliflozin group. But of course, there were also more uncomplicated genital and urinary tract infections in that group. So some other sort of pros and cons for using it. So we'll see. We'll see, as you say, you know, is this just a diuretic? Because, of course, this wasn't a trial comparing the benefits of SGLT2 inhibitors with anything else like spironolactone. This was just using um, these drugs versus a placebo. So um, we don't know how they compare with other treatments used in heart failure. But of course, this is heart failure with preserved ejection fraction um, rather than heart failure with an impaired one. Okay, well, we'll come back to... um these drugs later in the year. We've got an article that we're uh, going to look at there. Why do you? So we'll come back to that later on. And so let's move to our final main review article for this month. Another one in our series on prescribing for pregnancy. Uh, key headlines from this one? Yeah, key headline. This is uh, prescribing pregnancy for women with inflammatory rheumatic disease. Um, increasingly common issue. And once again, a really lovely review of the situation. Big headlines are pre-pregnancy counselling is the most important thing. You know, even in this group, 30 to 50% of pregnancies are unplanned. And it's really important that you try and make sure someone has disease remission at the time of conception and optimal disease control during pregnancy. So this is definitely a role for, for primary care. Any woman that you have who's got inflammatory rheumatic diseases, so we're talking about rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, and the spondyloarthropathies, you should be talking to them about good contraception and about, you know, planning for pregnancy now. Don't wait until it's a bit too late. And then uh, interesting issues around, um, I hadn't realised, for example, uh, TNF inhibitors have been around for 20 years and considered to be safe in pregnancy. You know, really interesting stuff. And another little key thing I picked out um, in men, cyclophosphamide and sulfasalazine, perhaps best avoided uh, at time of trying to conceive because of issues around 
um, infertility uh, and other issues. So some really useful stuff in there and definitely worth a read for anyone involved in the care of women and in the care of women in pregnancy. And useful summaries of the you know the drugs that you you really must avoid. Yeah. Um. And and, and some of the timescales for um, stopping them before uh, trying to conceive. And just back to this whole uh, issue about planning, planning, planning. The more you plan and prepare before pregnancy, the better your outcomes are likely to be. Exactly. And and some really good information resources too. There's the. Um, UK Teratology Information Service details. So lots of good stuff there for people to be able to use. Okay, thank you very much. Um, you can find these and all our articles on our website at dtp.bmj.com. Uh, and all our previous podcasts are also available on the website. Just click the podcast button at the top of the page. Uh, we have prepared some additional podcasts as part of our 60th anniversary celebrations, which are still going on. And our latest one is with Dr. John Dowden from Australian Prescriber, who's been a long-standing friend and colleague of DTB. And in that podcast, we talk about the role of drug bulletins and uh, poignantly some of the challenges involved in uh, publishing a drug bulletin. Uh, as ever, we're pleased to have comments on any of our content, whether it be the online articles or our podcasts. You can let us know what you think by emailing us at dtb at bmj.com. And many thanks for listening, and we hope you'll be able to join us in a month's time for March 2023 podcast. <laughs>